Praise the Lord. It's good to see them all go out. And uh, so good to be here. I, uh, I don't know about you, but I find the book of Acts such a fascinating book, such a fascinating history. You know, I think it makes us understand the world that happens to be around us. And one of the things I really find fascinating through it is the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the various different responses that, that, that we have uh, to it. Because when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached, when this message is issued forth, it's just not a philosophy, but it's telling us about what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished. And therefore, it begs a response. There has to be some response to it. Now, I know some people will try to ignore it. Some people will try to push it aside and just go on to uh, life uh, as usual. But when you really understand it, when you really comprehend what is being put forward, it begs for a response. And that's what we have in this passage of Scripture. We have a couple different responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, again, the call to put faith in the Lord Jesus. And the key verse in this whole passage is one that we went through uh, last time we were together, and it happened to be in verse number 19. And here Peter and John say to the, uh, uh, say to the Sanhedrin, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you uh, rather than God, you must decide. You know, and they're instructed, aren't they, not to preach in the name of Jesus. In other words, not to herald forth Jesus Christ anymore. And, and they're given an ultimatum. If they do, there are going to be repercussions. But one of the things I love about this passage is how they turn and put the ultimatum on the Sanhedrin. Because here, here they say, you know, you have to decide whether it is right to obey God or obey you. And the key there is in that question, isn't it? You know, in verse number 19, it says, you must decide. In other words, you must make a decision that happens to be again right there. They see the man who, who for 40 years has been by the gate beautiful, begging for alms. And he, he would have been a regular uh, a fixture. And here he is standing whole before them. You know, and here, here, you know, by what authority have you done this? By the name of Jesus, through the power of Jesus. The one reason why he is standing whole is because of Christ. It's because of the Christ who is Jesus of Nazareth, whom you put to death. And there's salvation in no one else. And so the call that happened to be again to the Sanhedrin at this time is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I don't know if we catch it in the text, but there's a lot of tension here. This is high drama. Remember, this is the only church that happens to exist. And the question is, how is this all going to play out? Are the Sanhedrin going to respond? Are they going to repent? Are they going to accept, again, what is right before them? You know, and as far as the apostles, what are they going to do? Are they going to listen to this threat? Are they going to acquiesce? You know, are they going to downplay or do their work behind the scenes? You know, and what plays out is a response, really, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's why I love this. To, uh, and, and it's the same today. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is articulated, when people understand the gospel and understand their circumstances, they're forced to, they're forced to response. Now, I know a lot of people, again, many times say, well, I'm just sitting on the fence. I'm not sure about Jesus Christ. I'm not sure whether I should believe in him, whether I should trust in him or whatever. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no such thing as a fence sitter, is there? You know, a fence sitter is just a denier of Jesus Christ. You know, and we have to realize that. At the same time, you know, if we say that we have faith in Jesus Christ, if we have a trust in Jesus Christ, 
Let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, when trials come into our life, when difficulties come into our life, there's a way that faith in Jesus Christ responds. You know, and this is why I love this passage of Scripture, because it allows us to analyze our hearts. It allows us to see, again, do we truly have faith in Jesus? Are we believing? And if we're not believing, why we are not believing in Jesus? You know, and it also, again, causes us to recognize what saving faith looks like. You know, saving faith is active. It does something. You know, it truly believes. And when it truly believes, there's an outcome that happens to be again right, right there. And so I want us to look at both of the, these responses. And I really want us to challenge our heart. I hope it will be beneficial. I, I hope it will help us, you know, truly glorify this God that happens to be again above. But I want to see the nature of unbelief, what unbelief truly looks like. And look at verses 21 and 22. It says, it says in... Uh, Chapter number four here, it's, it says, And when they had further threatened them, they let, they let them go, finding no punishment, no way to punish. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of, of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You know, and I think it helps us, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to understand why people reject the gospel. Why they reject Jesus Christ. And we could say again simply that it's the Holy Spirit of God that opens up their heart. But we realize that he uses us again as vessels of his grace to articulate these great messages of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to give an answer to everyone for the hope that happens to be again in us. But I think it's also helpful for you to look at yourself. If you happen to be, again, an unbeliever, there's many excuses that you use of why you do not believe on Jesus and I think one of the most helpful things is to see how valid these excuses are. Because, because I'm afraid, if you're like me, a lot of times we have that internal lawyer, and we're, when we're doing something wrong or we really want something in our life, it, it argues for, for our cause. In other words, we can be duped by lying to ourselves. You know, and by looking at some response outside of ourselves, we're able to articulate or we're able to judge how we are responding ourselves. And let me ask you the question, if you're rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, why are you rejecting the gospel? Because look at the Sanhedrin, look at these religious leaders right here, because you have this response in verse number 21. It says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So here's Peter and John. Here's Peter and John, and they present the gospel. They present Jesus Christ to these men. Here the gospel is validated because this man is standing before them whole. And they all would have known him. You know, and the the key question that they ask him is, you must decide. You must decide what to do with him. And here we have the response. What they do is further threaten them. Otherwise, they try to intimidate them with power. And please don't get, don't get me wrong in the text. They want to punish them. And let me just say this. They have the power to punish them. They have the power to, to imprison them. They have the power to beat them. And they have the power even to take, him, uh, take these two, two individuals to Pilate. Remember, Jesus Christ is guilty, was guilty of insurrection against the Roman Empire. Here's, here's preachers. Here's propagators. Here's followers of Jesus Christ that are making that same message known. You know, these are dangerous things. But here an amazing thing in the providence of God, the situation's different. You'll remember in the providence of God also that Jesus Christ was arrested in the early morning hours. You know, he was put on trial in the early morning hours. 
you know, before the crowds were around, before, again, everyone happened again right here. Here, this is different. You know, this is taking place during the day. There's huge crowds that happen to be gathered together, and we find, again, what they're doing. It says, for all, for all we're praising God for what had happened. So they're looking, looking at this man. They're seeing there, and they're praising God. They recognize this as a work for God. You know, and you can see that in verse number 22. It says, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Think, think about it. You know, 40 years, you know, from birth, his legs would have been shriveled up. And everyone who happened to be in Jerusalem that would come into the temple through that gate would have saw that man day after day after day. Pilgrims who would come three times a year, every time they came into Jerusalem, that same guy was there. Everybody knew him. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, his shriveled, weak legs, there's no way that he could ever walk. You know, there's no medical... Um, uh, device. There's no medical way that he could ever be made whole. And here he is right before them. And here's the challenge. You must decide. And what they want to do is they want to punish them. Right? But the text says they can't. And why can't they? For fear of the people that happen speaking around them. And I think this is so key. You know, we look at the turning points in, hu- in human history, the turning points in Christianity, and this is one of them. Remember, there's only one church. You know, and here the church, the province of God, is allowed to go on. You know, it's, it's amazing. But the question I want us to ask uh, this morning is, why did they respond the way that they responded? Why did they respond in unbelief? And let me just give you two, what I would call, characteristics of unbelief. And if you don't believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you beyond a shadow of doubt, and I'm trying to be loving this morning, this is true of you. This is absolutely true of you, and you have to see this. And one of the reasons why people reject Jesus Christ is because they have a natural prejudice. They have a natural bias, right? They have a bent against Jesus Christ. It's it's not what's true and what's false. It's not what's right and what's wrong. There is a natural bent against Jesus. They could care less that this man is whole. That happens to be be, uh, beside them. They hate Jesus. Jesus, and they are absolutely, they've dug in their heels, and they're absolutely sure that they are not going to trust Jesus no matter what. They have a hatred for Jesus. And have you ever asked yourself, why do they hate Jesus? Why do they hate Jesus? You know, I think it's a great question, isn't it? Because think of what Jesus did. He went, he went everywhere through the land of Israel, didn't he? And he healed people. You know, he lifted them out, up out of their misery, you know, the miserable conditions. They gave them a taste of the kingdom. And think of what he did. He called people back to God. You know, recognize who God is. Recognize there's a way that you can have your sins forgiven. You know, what's so bad about that message? What's so horrible? Why does it instill such hatred in people? And this is why. This is what you have to understand about the Sanhedrin. The reason why is because the reason why they have such a hatred against him is because they want what they want, right? And if you want what you want, you don't care about the truth. You don't care about Christ. I want this. And let me, let me say, you see the same bias? You see the same prejudice 
that happens to be again in our world today. You know, people could care less about the gospel. People could care less that someone's life has changed and has become beneficial for society. People could care less about truth and forgiveness many times. And this is why, because I want what I want. And if you don't think that's false, just look at our world that happens to be around us. If you happen to be the top in your field and you're looking for a tenure, you're looking for a position as far as a professor in a major university, let me tell you, if you're a professing Christian, if you articulate the truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in creation, well, let me, let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, the odds of you getting a professorship, a tenure at any major university is absolutely nil. And why? And why? You know, if you happen to be the best in your field, why? And let me tell you why, because there's a bias, there's a prejudice against Jesus Christ. If, you know, we're free thinkers, you know, uh, we're absolutely tolerant. But when you put a Christian, say a Christian, here is a Christian speaker that is going to give some sort of town hall or some sort of uh, symposium on Christianity. Let me tell you, people are going to come out with signs. You know, the students are going to be in uproar. The faculty is going to be in uproar. And why? Why? We're we're just going to preach on forgiveness. We're just going to preach about this carpenter who came, who is God in human flesh, to give this promise. Why? Let me tell you why. Because there's a bias. It's not truth. There's a bias. There is a bias. There's a prejudice. There's a bent on Christianity. And when you look at Hollywood, I mean, it's... It's, it always cringes. It always makes me go like this. The moment somebody says they are a born-again believer on Jesus Christ on the, on the film screen, I don't know if it does to you, but it does to me because I know what's coming next. The most bigoted, the most unloving, the most judgmental person happens to be the believer in Jesus Christ. And I, and I don't know about you. You know, I've been a Christian since about uh, age 21, 22, and I've never met a Christian like that. And I'm sure there's some out there. But let me tell you, the norm, even though we have our idiosyncrasies, even though we have our sins that happen to be in our life, even though we're not totally conformed in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, are loving people, forgiving people who truly want to do good to those that happen to be around us. So why do they portray someone like this? And this is why. is because if Jesus is true, I have to change. If I admit that truth about Jesus. And so what is there? There's a natural bias against Jesus Christ. You can see that in the political realm. You can see it again in all of life. And one of the things you have to realize is when you reject Jesus Christ, it's not about truth. Right? We might try to come up with various different ideas. This is why I reject Christ. This is why I want nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with truth. And if that is true, then my second point has to be true. And this is it. Unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ is against logic. Let me just say that again. Unbelief in Jesus Christ is not reasonable. It isn't, right? You know, people stand there, and I can remember a gentleman coming and just sneering at me, you know, as I presented the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I... And then so many times we can see this in society. They mock, scorn, ridicule, laugh at those who happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus. But let me tell you, I want you to understand this. When you reject the gospel, it's not because you reject it because you are for truth. You are against truth. It is the most illogical thing. I mean, think of it. Here they are. You know, here they are. And, and, and they see this man who happens to be, again, born 
uh, born with these shriveled legs that's absolutely lame before them. Here again they ask, by what power, by what authority did you do this? By Jesus Christ. Now think about the most illogical thing to do. The most illogical thing to do at that point is to do what? Is to reject them. In fact, it's amazing because our text says in verse number 14, it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, guess what? They had nothing to say in opposition. They couldn't even open up the Old Testament scriptures and say, no, we don't, we don't agree with you. And this is because, look, 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 this is where written. No, 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 no. We know this man uh, wasn't healed. We, we know beyond a shadow. They can't say that. They have nothing to say in opposition. But what do they do? They oppose it. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this, uh, wrote this, and he's absolutely right. He says, people who reject the gospel are not rejecting opinions, right? People who reject the gospel are not rejecting opinions. They are rejecting facts. And that is what is so frequently forgotten. And listen to what he says right here, because this is so important. He says, so often the gospel is regarded as a point of view that can be accepted and rejected. In other words, it's a philosophy of life. Lloyd-Jones goes on and he says this, but when you are dealing with the New Testament, as I constantly seek to point out, here it is, you are dealing with hard facts, with things that have been seen and heard. And facts are concrete, aren't they? They're cemented, they're truth. You, you know, you can't change a fact once it's there. You know, if you came out to church today, you cannot change the fact that you didn't come out to church today. And why? Because you're here. That's a fact. You know, and here, think of these men, because here they are rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting salvation. They happen to be right here. And they'd love to take that lame man that was healed and make him lame again, make him in his miserable condition and put him back at the, at the gate that he would beg again. That happened to be again right there. You know, and why? It's because their faith is their faith against Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, I think it takes more faith to reject the gospel than it does for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason why, it's against reason. You know, people would love for Jesus to stay in the grave. Why did he have to rise? You know, here the religious leaders never go get the corpse of Jesus. And why? Because you cannot get a living corpse. Because a living corpse is not a corpse, is it? And how about you this morning? When you look at your unbelief, you might come up with all sorts of reasons why I don't believe. But let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is a bias. There is a prejudice. Let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that your unbelief is unreasonable. I mean, it's not hard to see, is it? You know, when you look that happened to be again around it, it's easy to see that you're a sinner, right? Right? Here we go. How, how, how'd you do with this one? You shall not lie. Okay? Okay, everyone put up their hands. How about this? You should not murder. Jesus explains that anytime I have hatred in my heart, oh, man, how, how many people have I murdered in my lifetime? How about this? You should cannot commit adultery. Every time a man lusts, every time a woman lusts in their heart, for someone that's not their spouse, they've committed adultery. How many times? Right? It's easy to see. 
And where does that guilt come from? Where does that understanding come from? It comes from God because I have sinned against God. I deserve punishment. And let me say beyond a shadow of it, so Jesus coming, here he is, God in human flesh, to live that life that I could never live, is reasonable. It's logical. But here's the question. Here's the question. You must decide. Nobody else can decide that for you. You must decide. What are you going to do with this message? What are you going to do with this Jesus? What are you going to do with this gospel? You know, that's one of the responses that we see in this passage of Scripture. And we realize today is the day of salvation, but we also see the nature of faith. And you see that in a passage of Scripture that our brother Richard read, and he cut it off in the middle of uh, the section. And the reason why he cut it off in the middle of the section is because I'm cutting it off in the middle of the section. But in verse number 23 and following, it goes this. And, when, when the, and think about it, because this is how the disciples responded to the threat. And it says, when they were, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of your father, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop right there. Now, we realize that we're living in vastly different times than the apostles. And that says, uh, that, that says too little about that. That was a different day, a different culture. But when we look at the nature of unbelief that happens to exist back then, we can see that nature of unbelief has not changed. But may I also say this? When God gives life through the Holy Spirit and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say that nature of life, that supernatural life that's given by God, where we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we respond to life, that hasn't changed either. And there's a way that saving faith truly responds in all of the struggles, in all of the difficulties, in all the opposition of life. And I don't know about you, but I think you're living in the fallen world. I'm living in a fallen world. And if we're living in a fallen world where there's going to be pressure, there's going to be opposition, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be trials that haven't begun in our life, let me ask you, are you responding in a, in a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I think a better question would be asked of the, like this. What does that faith look like? What does that trust in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our everyday lives look like? Because here, the disciples are threatened. Here, they're threatened, again, with pain. They're threatened with opposition. They're, in, they're threatened with uh, imprisonment and even death itself. And what do they do in the midst of all of this? Well, we see how true faith responds, and it responds in three different ways. And the first way it responds in the midst of suffering and persecution is basically this, the people of God identify, please get this, the people of God always identify with, here it is, the people of God, right? We run to our resources. We run to people who, 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 who identify with Jesus Christ. We run to what we call the church. And remember, the church is not a building. The church is the People, the people, right? right. We are the body of Christ. And so in pain, in conflict, in opposition, where do, where do we turn? We turn to the people of God. 
And you can see this in verse number 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, you have to think about this, because here they're warned, you know, have nothing to do with Jesus, don't be preaching Jesus, and where's the first thing they go? They go to the people who love Jesus and who are preaching Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And they go to him. And when it says they went and reported again all these, all these things, it's probably not talking about the 5,000 that we saw earlier at the beginning of chapter number 4, because there's no place that could carry or hold 5,000 people in Israel, now, or, or in Jerusalem. Now, maybe they went outside of Jerusalem. I really don't know. Maybe it was all of them. But more likely, it was a segment, again, of the leadership, or even the 120 that gathered uh, before the day of Pentecost, but it was a segment of the church that they gathered together to report, to give a report of what the leaders did. Now, think about it. Why would they do that? Why would they go to the church? Why not just go off by yourself that happen to be over here or over here or wherever it happens to be? Why? And, and let me tell you, you know, one of the reasons why is because we carry one another's burdens. Isn't it true? You know, that's what the church is. It's a collective of people who really care for one another. And true believers in the time again of turmoil, the time of opposition, the time again of threat, don't turn against one another. You know, you can take any other human organization, and when the pressure's on, people scatter. It's almost like trying to pick up uh, peas with, with a fork. If you've ever tried to try that, it's futility. And if you ever have me over for a meal over your house, please don't give me peas. I find that such a futility in trying to eat. But let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, everybody else scatters. But what, what does a church do, do? They come together. They, they support. They're not fair with their friends, but we realize through the Holy Spirit of God, through the work of our great God, he has caused a trust to happen to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we go for encouragement. We go for strength. And, and, and here's the thing, in the midst of this world that happens to be around us that has a natural bent against Jesus Christ, there's a solidarity, isn't there? There's a oneness that exists among the people of God. In other words, on Sunday morning, guess what? It's not drudgery, right? It's not, oh, whoa, it's me. I have to go and gather with the people of God. But these are my people. These are Christ's people. And we gather again with the people of God. You know, that's what we do in opposition. That's what we do in threat. And think of it, because here they are. If you continue in this way, if you continue in this way, there's going to be repercussions. And let me tell you, those repercussions come to pass as you go through the book of Acts. But here they go, here they go, here they go. Stop it, stop it, stop it. And here they go right back into it, right back to the people of God. That's what saving faith does. It goes to its resources. It goes to the people of God. But the second characteristic is in verse number 24. And when they heard it, in other words, when the church heard it, when these believers heard it, this is what they said. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. So think about it. Here you are threatened. Here it could even cost your life. Here it could cost your livelihood. Here you could be thrown into prison. Here you could be beaten. And what do these believers do? These believers engage in prayer, you know, because they have the personal relationship with God. And in prayer, that's an amazing thing. They're reminded. They get, they're going to give a request to have us be right here, but they're reminded who God is, right, and who he is. The sovereign Lord 
who is over all and who has made all. Right? He's sovereign and he's Lord. Now, for all those Greek grammarians, what is the Greek word for Lord here? Anyone know? Or what's the Greek word for Lord? Anyone know? Curious. Mike, I said that because I knew you would say it, and this is the first time I can say, to say this to you. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The most popular word for Lord in the New Testament, as Mike has said, is curios. You know, it's a name that's given to the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ our Lord. Curios, 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 curios. But here as they pray to the great God that happens to be above, the Greek word is depotes. Now, what kind of word, English word, do we get from that? Anyone know? Despot. And what's a despot? He's an absolute ruler with absolute power. Now, why is that so important? Because here's the Sanhedrin, right? They're looking down at the disciples. Don't you preach Christ. Don't you preach Christ. Where's the power? Here we go. Sovereign Lord over all of creation, the maker of heaven and earth and the skies. Who is God? God is the God of power. God is the God of all of authority. And this is the one that they come through. So think about it. Here they are, they're threatened. And think of our own lives this week and the trials and difficulties of our own life. And this is what saving faith does. It runs to God. It comes to God again in prayer. You know, and, and, and the thing you have to realize about prayer, prayer is a language of dependence, isn't it? Guess what? If I don't need God, if I can do it on my own, if I can have enough strength to stand and preach and make known Jesus Christ, then I don't need to pray. But these fickle individuals, which is proof, and again, when we would go back the night in which Jesus Christ was betrayed, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, they didn't have the bravery, they didn't have the stamina, They didn't have the strength to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they knew someone who had the grace and the mercy to give them that stamina, that boldness to make known Jesus Christ. Ah, sovereign Lord, you know, the maker of all these things. And so they pray to him. But there is a third activity, isn't there, in this passage of Scripture? Not only... Think about it. Here we are, pressure on us. Here we are, the going gets tough. Here we are in the midst of this life, the trials, the opposition. People are coming against us. We're put in unfavorable positions. We never thought we'd go through the things that we are going through in life. And what do we do? We go to the people of God for encouragement, for counsel, for direction, you know, again, for insight, all of those things, even correction in our life. We all of a sudden lift our voices up to this great God that happens to be above, but there's more. Because look at verse number 25. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop right there. I mean, isn't it amazing? I love the way the word of God is described here. Don't you? Don't you love it? Right? Through the mouth of David. Through the mouth of David. You know, who spoke Psalm 2? Who wrote it? And the one who wrote it was David. But who really is the author of this book? The author of the book is what? God. Through the Holy Spirit of God. This is divine. You know, people say, oh, it's full of mess. And they've never read it. Think about this. What other book 
has common themes, same God. Here it is, paradise lost in the first, paradise found in the end. Here's a promise in Genesis 3.15 with the coming Savior, and then we read about him in the New Testament. What other book was written for, took 1,500 years to complete, written by 40 different authors in 40 different historical circumstances? Some of them were kings, some of them were priests, some of them were fishermen, some of them were farmers from all walks of life, and it never contradicts itself. It's full of prophecies that have come to pass. And what is this book? This book is divine, so think about it. Think about where you turn. You're going through issues in life. You're going through trials in life. You're going through opposition in life. And what do the people of God, how do they respond in faith to God? And this is how. They get their perspective from the word of God. They realize the God of the, of the word in our world today. They realize how God has given us light to walk in these difficult times that we might glorify him. It explains it, right? It explains our world, it explains our God, and it explains us. So here we have these difficulties, here we have these trials, and here we have this biblical grid, you know, that we know these truths that happen to be God, and then we pass it through who God is, who we are, how we should respond, and we come out to that response that most glorifies him. That's what we do. And why? Because Christians are this. They are people of the book, right? That's what they are. God has spoken. He has given revelation. And that's why we come every single week. And I never say this, and I hope nobody ever says this in the pulpit. I had some neat thoughts this week, and I'm going to share them with you. You know what that is? That's a philosophy. You know what this is? This is fact. This is history. This is teaching. This is from God. So what does saving faith do in the midst of opposition? What does it do in the midst of trials that happen to begin in your life? It runs to the resources. You know, it's a real shame when we look at North American Christianity, and I think it only exists in North American Christianity, our first world countries. And that is, again, there's a downplaying of the significance of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, the need of it. And let me tell you, do you run to your resources? Do you run to the church? Do you run to people that happen to be in the church to get correction, guidance, uh, direction that happen to begin in your life in the midst of all that? Are you known as a person who prays to this great God? You know, whether we're going through conflict, whether we're going through turmoil, but we pray to this sovereign, ah, sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all that happens to be again in. Do we pray to him? And are we people of the book? Knowing the book, treasuring the book, looking at the book, realizing that this book is divine. I wonder if we really believe that, how often we'd be in it. Isn't it true? That God has spoken a personal message, how often we'd be in it. When you look at these three things, do they sound familiar? Do they sound like your life? My life? You know, as we walk? This is the way that shows us how we respond to the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. Here's what faith in Christ really looks like. May all of us examine our lives and truly respond. What will you do? 
with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we looked at both ends today, both ends of that spectrum of what you must decide. Lord, how you are going to respond to the gospel. And we realize, Lord, that there is a response that rejects you. And Lord, as we look at it from outside perspective, at these individuals, Sanhedrin, Lord, we see the same sort of rejection today. We realize that there is a bias. We realize, Lord, it's unreasonable, that it truly is against logic. God, people will come up with various different uh, uh, excuses. Lord, whether it happens to be some Christian they know, whether it happens to be, again, their, um, uh, their study that happens to be, again, in university, but it never deals with the message. It never deals with the facts of the gospel. It never deals with Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death, Lord, and even his resurrection that's so historically verified. And God, I just pray that if there's anybody who happens to be watching online, if there is anyone that happens to be here this morning, Lord, that through the Holy Spirit, you would show them the unreasonableness of their response and that they would come to Christ. Lord, I pray for us as the people of God. So often we can get off course. So often, Lord, we can downplay the significance of the people that you've put in our life, the other members of the household of faith. God, I pray that we would find our greatest friendships, our greatest alliances, our greatest encouragement, Lord, our greatest buttress to the faith among those who happen to be believers in this world that happens to be around us. I pray, Lord, that we would be known as a praying church. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a Bible-believing church who knows the Bible, who dwells in the Bible. Lord, you command us even to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Lord, may that word dwell in us richly to give us guidance in this world and strength to be your witnesses. We thank you so much. Just be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.